0: Hello, out there to all my listeners, and thank you for joining me for episode 29 of the Mark Guy Show. Uh, so, I've got a pretty exciting slate of topics to talk about today. They may seem like they're unrelated, they're all in different countries. None of them are actually directly relevant to the United States, but these all have to do with things that I have talked about. They're all international, of course, so they're non US, uh, and th- these kind of represent the important battles of our times, ultimately a battle that will determine whether we're moving toward more freedom or toward less freedom, and whether we're moving toward centralization or toward decentralization. So the three stories I want to talk about are the United Kingdom's anti-encryption laws, and that's part of what's called the Investigatory Powers Act that was just passed on November 29th. It was signed, basically signed into law by the Queen, given... Uh, the royal assent. Uh, So I want to talk about the anti-encryption provisions within that act. And a lot of other things were passed within that act. There was also basically giving much of the law enforcement apparatus in in the United Kingdom the right to access internet browsing records without any specific warrants, Uh, about 30 to 40 agencies have the right to do this now after this act has been passed. But I want to talk more specifically about the anti-encryption provisions within that law. Next, I want to talk about India's war on cash. Basically what India has done, they've outlawed their 500 and 1000 rupee bills, which is equivalent to about seven and a half dollars and $15. Basically overnight and with very little warning, for anybody. And this is a country that has been very dependent on cash. About 98% of its tranja- uh, transactions have been conducted in cash. And now you've taken away these two kind of standard everyday bills. And so you have forced a lot of people to, to, to convert into bank deposits and to enter the banking system. And I've talked about the war on cash in the United States previously, but I think India's war on cash is very similar to what Kenneth Rogoff talked about, and I, I will link to that episode. I forget which episode specifically was the war on cash, but I will have that on uh, uh, on my website in the suggested readings uh, portion of that page. Uh, next, I want to talk about Italy's referendum, which resulted in Prime Minister Renzi's resignation, and the short description of of what happened there was Prime Minister Renzi had promised to resign if this referendum did not pass so referendums we've seen them commonly in Europe they are used in certain states in the United States but they are more of a uh, more of a phenomenon in Europe so the United Kingdom we saw them deciding to brexit deciding to leave the European Union through referendum and it's basically direct democracy The people directly vote on a particular issue. And what this referendum was trying to do was to alleviate gridlock was the purpose that they gave. But because Italy has a perfectly bicameral legislative system and bills have to go through both layers of the House, and what Renzi and the people that were supporting this referendum wanted to do was basically to empower one of those houses to be able to to feed legislation through there and basically to take away power from the other branch. So it'd be much easier to pass legislation legislation, and it'd be easier to bypass the will of the people. And I'll explain why that is necessarily. So like I said, first I want to talk about the United Kingdom and its anti-encryption laws. So why is encryption important? why am i talking about it why should we be worried about it why i think it's important to the liberty movement is because it's one of the vital ways to maintain confidentiality and anonymity in the computer age so i've talked about computers and the internet being central to having more power, to, to to giving more power to the individual basically and how it's empowered us to be able to make far more individualized transactions to not need to rely on one size fits all types of stores. You can shop at a variety of different websites that are catering to the particular niches that you belong to. Um, Also, it's enabled us to communicate in ways that we've never been able to before in human history. But with that, when communicating, there are logs of this communication. Everything is tracked. If the government's ambitious enough, it can get its hands on particular you know, particular lines of communication that you've had, your internet browsing history, uh, and because this record has been taken, I think people's security has been diminished. And you see all these people's uh, identities getting hacked. I think that's that's a pretty obvious result of things going far more digital and things being moved to computers. These systems are vulnerable no matter what you do. I think the hackers. The hackers are always going to be one step ahead of you, and the government also is going to be always investing significant sums of money to try to stay ahead of the average consumer and to be able to keep tabs on who it wants to keep tabs on. So why encryption is important specifically and and what it is, what first comes to mind when you think of encryption is kind of a legal underground activity, that you have something to hide because you don't want the government to see it. You don't want other people to see it. You're ashamed of it. That's what a lot of people think of when encryption first comes to mind. But in reality, it's used by individuals, businesses, charities, and governments across the map to protect personal information. Like I said before, maintain confidentiality and preserve customer confidence. Because like I'd said before as well, hackers are always going to be one step ahead of you. And encryption is a fantastic way To keep things safe from hackers. The best analogy I've heard is to a safe. Basically end-to-end encryption is what I'm going to be talking about specifically. But generally, you can think of encryption as being a small lock on this particular safe where information has been put into that safe. And you and the other intended party are the only ones with the keys to this lock. No one else can get into and access the information in this safe unless they have that key. Unless you give them the long code that can that can unlock this lock and get you into the safe, so the utility of encryption is obvious. But the oftentimes unthought of benefits of encryption come in the face of, of an oppressive government. So you, I I know that I've talked on this show about kind of guns being a being a great equalizer, and how once a government gets oppressive and you know, wants to infringe upon your liberty, guns are one of the last lines of defense that you have against that oppressive government. But I think encryption can fit right into that category as well because if, if a government tries to keep too close the tabs on you, if it wants to infringe on your freedom in that way, encryption is a great way for you to be able to communicate with others. And whether that's sub- subversive, Type of uh, type of communication or what encryption does protect you from those that you don't want to see what you're doing from being able to see it. Governments always, uh, obviously realize this function of encryption, so they'd like nothing more than to control it or at least to to try to control it. And then in steps the government of the United Kingdom with this Investigatory Powers Act, as I had said in the in the opening, was signed into law, essentially, you know, their ver- their version of signing it into law on November 29th. Uh, so I'm a little bit late talking about this, but still definitely worth us talking about. And the details of what this act did in terms of encryption. Uh, so this is the direct language. Quote, the Secretary of State may give a relevant operator a notice, a technical capability notice, imposing on the relevant operator any applicable obligations specified in this notice and requiring the person to take all steps specified in the notice for the purpose of complying with those obligations so then one of those obligations pertains to the removal of electronic protection when requested so obligations uh, relating to the removal of a relevant operator of electronic protection applied by uh, applied by or on behalf of that operator to any communications or data. So, what is electronic protection? That's encryption. That's end-to-end encryption, having some sort of protection on information. You're now required by law to give the key or whatever uh, whatever is required to access that information. So, this is a huge blow to encryption. What I think is impossible about this is the private sector is always going to stay a step ahead of the government. I talked about hackers staying ahead of the individual and hackers always being able to stay one step ahead of those trying to control them. That is certainly true. But the internet as a whole, so it's not just going to be people in the, in the United Kingdom that are coming up with ways to get around these laws and to make it impossible to, to see. The ingenuity of people is kind of impossible to, to comprehend. And they will stay one step ahead of this legislation and will be able to still encrypt files no matter what the the government of the United Kingdom would like to do. But why this is important is it shows what governments are trying to do. They see the potentials for freedom that the Internet offers and that particular features of the Internet offer. So you see the U.S. government's approach to Bitcoin and how it it really doesn't want to give it any credit, doesn't want to recognize it as a competitor for the dollar or for other currencies. Uh, With encryption, it would like nothing more than to be able to control this because it puts power in the hands of the people. Now, is freedom dangerous? And can freedom be dangerous? And I've said this many times on this show, yes, it can be. Freedom is not perfect. Just as I talked about free markets are not perfect, but you need to look at the positives and the negatives. And the founding fathers were correct that you should not be willing to trade security or trade your liberty for security. Now, to a certain extent, living in a society, you are trading some of your liberty for security. But there are certain points beyond where I don't think you want to go. And I think people have now gone so far over to one end, so far to the end of of trading so much liberty for very small increments of security that I think that needs to be reversed. I, I think people are pinning themselves into a corner and are giving up so much of this freedom that computers that technology has been able to give us and that people in the past have fought for as well. They couldn't really have foreseen the development of technology and how that would aid in the things that they fought for. But that in tandem with the technology that has arisen really makes it possible to be more free today, I think, than ever before. But that is not what governments would like. And that's why these types of laws are coming into effect Somehow the people of the United Kingdom did not fight this lock, stock, and barrel. But I I do have to say the U.S. has done similar things here without much really say from the people. And when the U.S. is on a war footing, it becomes even less likely that the people are going to show any sort of resistance because they're so willing to trade that liberty for any semblance of security. So I wouldn't be surprised to see the US try to do the same thing here when the opportunity presents itself. Right now would be the worst possible time probably to try to do that just because you're riding this this wave of populism. People don't really think of the US being on a war footing, though we are in other countries, but there's there's not a there's not a big war going on. But if and when there is a big war, that is the perfect time for government to step in and to enact laws that otherwise would have have been seen as unconscionable. And we've seen that throughout American history. We saw it recently with the Patriot Act under George W. Bush that was able to be passed through because people were scared. People were scared after 9-11. They were scared that there was going to be another attack on U.S. soil. So they were willing to make such a lopsided trade of, of their liberty for more security that this ridiculous legislation was able to pass and you've seen it before that too I think the Patriot Act is probably perfect probably one of the f- first things that a lot of people my age remember you know 9/11 is is a little bit foggy for me. I was nine years old but I remember I remember the event and I remember the aftermath and I remember what was forced through directly afterwards and so I think a lot of people my age, The Patriot Act would be the first thing they think of of the government taking their liberty in the name of security. Uh, So I would be scared of this on U.S. soil. I know it's it's easy to, to think that because it's happening elsewhere that it never can happen here. But the United Kingdom is one of the closest allies of the United States, quite possibly the closest, maybe second after Canada, But the United Kingdom also is significantly more powerful than Canada. Uh, But if it can happen in the United Kingdom, it can certainly happen in the United States. And I've talked about the parallels between Brexit and the Donald Trump victory, showing how similar these two countries are and how there's a divide in the United Kingdom, just like in the United States, between really urban and rural people. And the rural people have kind of responded to what they see as an as an overtaking of the country by the elites by riding this wave of populism. How the United Kingdom thought it was best was to vote in favor of Brexit, to leave the European Union, to bring power closer to home. They saw these unaccount these unaccountable bureaucrats in Brussels as controlling their lives, so the best way for them to to take back power from the elites was to leave the leave the European Union. The United States, the largely rural voters that supported Donald Trump to victory. I know obviously there was support for him all over the country, but the reason why he won was because of rural America. And I'm lumping in smaller cities as well into that, so it's not just small towns of, of 500 or fewer people. Uh, but they saw the best way is voting this this guy that had never been in politics, that wasn't part of the the Democratic or Republican machine, that pissed off a lot of the people that they also did not like and they thought that was our best path to try to take power back from the elites. Now it remains to be seen how successful either of those two things are Um, but I just want to implore you to think about the connections and the similarities between the United Kingdom and the United States and how this law passing there makes it a true possibility in the United States and I think would make the United States government a little bit more audacious In terms of, well, the United Kingdom passed it, so look, it it must have some efficacy, so we should pass it here now. We should try to get that through Congress in the United States. But the attacks on encryption should be concerning. And yes, I know that encryption can be used for crime purposes and that there there are a lot of negative uses of encryption. Just like there are with any tool that helps a lot of people. You know, um, uh, imagine how much a car has enabled us to travel far further than our ancestors ever could have. Imagine all the uses of your car, how you're able to get a far wider range of goods and services because you're able to travel places in your car. You're able to have a far wider range of places of, of potential employment to choose from. You're able to see your family far more often if you live at any distance from your family. All these great things about cars, but It can also be a tool of death and a lot of people can die in car accidents and somebody drunk can get behind the wheel and hurt themselves and others. Somebody can use it like, uh, um, that, that truck, that truck, uh, bombing basically, or where he was plowing over people over in France, you know, it can be used as a weapon directly in that way, intentionally used as a weapon. But does that mean that we should be critical of cars? No, it should be. We recognize that there are negative, t- there are negative uses to any great tool. And encryption is a fantastic tool that protects us, that protects confidentiality and anonymity, and there are so many beneficial uses to that. So nobody should be saying, "Well, I don't need encryption because I'm not sending anything that I don't want it or that I need to protect from other people seeing." Well, just because you say that now doesn't mean you won't be in that position in the future. It doesn't mean that the government will change and that you will now feel the need to encrypt your information, to protect your information from them being able to see. You don't know how your life situation will change over time either. So anybody that's in favor of liberty and freedom should be very concerned about these anti-encryption laws. And if anybody brings it up as a possibility to implement in the United States, fight this lock, stock, and barrel. Because really the internet... And computers are one of the last really one of the last battlegrounds for freedom so what I wanted to talk about next was the war on cash in uh, the war on cash in India and I had talked about Kenneth Rogoff and his book the curse of cash and I talked about it in a previous episode like I said before I will link to it I don't remember what episode number it was but there will be a link to it on my suggested readings portion of uh, of the website. And what Kenneth Rogoff advocated was the abolition of any dollar bills over $10 in the United States. So the $100 bill, gone. $50 bill, gone. $20 bill, gone. So you'd only have the the one, five, and, and $10 bills remaining. And his rationale behind this is $100 bills dominate united states currency around the world they're often used in illegal transactions we we can make it far more difficult for people conducting illegal activities to be able to conduct these illegal activities if they don't have access to the hundred dollar bill they'll need to use digital currencies like bitcoin or they'll need to transport 10 times as many 10 dollars bills as they would have had to transport 100 hundred-dollar bills uh previously so he, he approaches it in a crime fighting type of way but what I said in that episode is, I think it's all a cover. They say that. They say it's for crime reduction. But I picked out particular quotes in his interview that he gave. And it was it's far harder in an interview to have your canned responses and to not give up some of your true intentions. It's easy to do that in an article. You can read it, reread it, constantly massage what you're saying. But in an interview you're talking off the cuff a little bit and you're gonna betray maybe things that you otherwise wouldn't betray when writing something. So Rogoff had talked about how this would make negative interest rates a possibility, whereas now they're far less likely of a possibility and how they give uh, how having cash be less of an instrumental part of the of the economy would give the central bank more power. And so he talked about all this in addition to, crime fighting but i think that the biggest reason why is because it gives central banks more control obviously having money in depository institutions having electronic record of every transaction it gives them far more at their disposal in terms of in terms of policy and it gives them basically an exact indication of the amount of cash outstanding it makes it far easier to pilfer these people through inflation and negative interest rates, I think, are the ultimate goal of these types of policies. To have that on the table is a, is a big reason behind these uh, these wars on cash. So what happened in India is Modi, the, the prime minister in India, uh, basically overnight banned 501,000 rupee bills, which are equivalent to about... Seven fifty dollars and $15 in, in U.S. dollars. Uh, cash has been used for about 98% of transactions in India leading up to this. And it's being sold, once again, just like Rogoff tried to sell it, as a crackdown on corruption. So this swept away 86% of the total currency in circulation. And it basically forced people to take their take their money into banks whereas before they were distrustful of the banking system i have read previously i don't think i have anything to support this i I don't know if this comes from thomas soul or where this came from that i read this but that indian people are eminently distrustful of the banking system because of volatility in the past and they've just they've just grown to trust cash Unless we need to, we're not going to put our money into depository institutions and we're going to conduct our transactions in cash because I think it's because of bank failures in the past and because they, they could not trust that once they put their money into a bank, it was going to be there in the morning or it's going to be there when they needed it. But what Modi's doing is by governmental decree is basically forcing these people to put money into banks because there aren't other uses for these bills anymore. And this article that I was reading from Bloomberg talked right away about the uh, the entrepreneurs that have that have founded various companies that use digital currency. So, kind of take taking banking type services to uh, to people in in rural areas. Uh, Paydom, who uh, I don't really know the specifics about. Paytm, them but they have a quote from the founder of Paytm. quote this is the golden age to be a tech entrepreneur in india especially a fintech one keep the money digital so obviously there's there are a lot of interests that benefit from this and people that have founded these types of companies that that obviously will benefit from from cash not being used to to the same extent that it was previously these people will be in favor of this type of legislation just like in any other industry so we shouldn't take what the people who run companies that will benefit directly from these laws we should not take what they say seriously of course he's going to say keep the money digital because it helps his company it helps him make more money helps his shareholders make more money of course he's going to say that so i hated that they let off with that quote as if that's something that we should take as oh it's a benefit for the people because the founder of a company that's going to benefit says that it's a good thing um, about a quarter of the two trillion dollars and the two trillion dollars equivalent in rupees is is unaccounted for. Modi talked about like, like I said before, improving transparency. And the latest move is estimated to more than double annual growth at payment companies. So that was what I was talking about before. Obviously any sort of legislation that comes in that you that, that you think is going to double the growth of the industry that your company operates in, you're going to come out in favor of it. Furthermore, what this article also said, and it was sources that weren't named, so I'm I'm not claiming to know this intimately by any means or to have strong sources to back this up, but it says India is also planning to ban cash transactions of more than five hundred thousand rupees, said people with knowledge of the matter asking not to be identified as they aren't authorized to speak with the media. So five thousand rupee or five hundred thousand rupees is approximately seventy five hundred dollars. Give or take uh, a couple hundred, so that's the end game here. There's another quote in here from a, another person that will benefit from from this. Of course, there are no quotes from from people in rural India. There are no quotes from the from the little guy from the poor people that are going to be negatively impacted this because they earn daily 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 wages and cash which is how a lot of the indian economy operates and conduct all of their transactions in cash and now they're forced to move into a system that they don't want to move into and that's going to negatively impact their life at least to start with Um, and this quote really irks me so tuesday's bold move will push all those fence sitters to make a jump into the world of mobile and digital banking The learning curve will be steeper and faster as this innovative move has pushed people against a wall and is forcing them to change transactions into lesser cash intensive ones. And I have such a problem. This is part of this elite mindset that we know what's the best way for people to operate. And if people aren't operating the way that we think they should operate, we need to push them in that direction. We need to force them to do things the way that we think is best. And yes, you know I I conduct a lot of my transactions digitally. I do conduct a lot of my personal transactions in cash on a daily basis, just because I think I spend less that way. So I know the benefits of being digital with your currency. You know I'm I use a national bank, uh, a very large bank, and I'm able to get benefits that I could not get at a at a local branch of a of a smaller local bank. I use also a savings account with a national bank because they are their rates are far higher than what you could get anywhere locally. So I know intimately there are benefits to it. But just because I see benefits to it for me, it doesn't mean that I can dictate what somebody else does. Only they know the best path of, uh, of practices for them. Only they know what's going to benefit them the most. And will they make mistakes? Of course. We all make mistakes. I've made poor purchases and poor decisions, as has everybody else listening to this show. So I'm not saying that, that there will be perfect outcomes in that system, but that's a far better system. Let people control how they do things than having these people at the top that really don't understand how a lot of people live, trying to impose their vision of the world on everybody else. And this quote, that quote that I just read, really grinded my gears when I, when I read through this because it's the exact epitome of that type of attitude by the elites that you know people are just resistant to change that's why they're not getting involved in the digital world the digital world is 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 so fantastic all they should do they need to be in the digital world if they're not in the digital world they're not really living life so what do we need to do we need to ban cash or ban certain bills to force them into our system that we in our infinite wisdom think is so incredible So once again, India, I know it's not a a super close ally with the United States, but it's one of the largest countries in the world, second highest population of any country in the world after China. Uh, They are quite westernized due to uh, British colonization and British occupation of India for a long time. Uh, There's a pretty substantial Indian American population in the United States as well. So there are ties there. And I think what India is trying to do is catch up with the rest of the world and catch up in this sense means buying into this uh this elite love and i, and I don't want to say everybody is in favor of these types of policies but I, it gets pretty broad support by a lot of mainstream economists and by people that that believe in the central bank being able to kind of control the business cycle that believe in the efficacy of the central bank in it in its current form uh I'm talking specifically about the Federal Reserve in the United States, but other central banks operate in a, in a very similar way, though usually their ties to the government are more overt rather than covert, like the like the Federal Reserve is. Uh, but these people favor, maybe not an outright ban on cash, but gradually moving in that direction to force people into the digital world. And they sell it as this way to eliminate crime, or the, this way to reduce crime at the very least. But I think that's just a cover. I don't think they really care about reducing crime, and I think what it really is is about control. And very similar to what I talked about in the anti-encryption laws, I think we should be very distrustful of any of these types of policy dictates or any of these sort of ideas that we should that we should move away from cash. If, if we're going to move away from cash, let the people decide. If they think it's in their best interest... They will start depositing all their money in accounts they will move away from cash and start using bitcoin if if that's how they want to operate but let the people make that decision and yes it makes it easier to conduct criminal activity the larger the bills you have in circulation it does make it easier so i'm not trying to argue that point but once again it's all about trade-offs and trading away your liberty for a for a small reduction in crime and I talked about in that in that previous War on Cash episode. I don't think this would have a large impact on crime. Criminals are smart. Criminals are rational. They will figure out a way to conduct their illegal activity with or without $100 bills, with or without U.S. dollars. It will happen. So you're willing to trade a significant part of your liberty, the ability to conduct transactions anonymously with cash, to be able to hold cash and not have to Be trustful of or to put your trust in a particular bank to not close because yes the FDIC does insure uh insure deposits up to the $250,000 limit but that takes time to get your money back Um, and I can understand why people are distrustful of banks and it's completely their right to if they want to keep money under their mattress let them keep money under their mattress let them decide when the digital age has caught up to the point or has reached the point where they can't resist it any longer. I do not want to see this by governmental decree forcing people into the digital system. So third and finally, I wanted to talk about Italy's referendum. And I talked about it in the intro, but what this referendum was it was a, it was basically a constitutional amendment. It was a change to the constitution. We would think of it as a as an amendment. But basically, what the referendum would do it would it would remove the pure bicameralism, and bicameralism is a is a two-house legislature. And how things are currently in Italy, the power is divided up perfectly between the Senate and the Chamber, uh, and bills have to pass through both. And what this referendum was attempting to do was to reduce the role of the Senate, which if you think about how the Senate and the House of Representatives were originally supposed to be in the United States. So the Senate was supposed to be, they were supposed to be appointed by the state legislatures, not by direct election by the people. That was due to a constitutional amendment that they became directly elected by the people. But so the Senate, seen as the upper house, because it's not directly elected by the people, or at least at that point in time, it was not directly elected by the people. And then the House of Representatives is the lower house because it was directly elected by the people. Um, So Italy has a similar bicameral system, at least in that sense where the Senate members, the senators are elected by uh, the legislative bodies in charge of the various regions of Italy. And then the lower house, which is the chamber, They are directly elected by the people but what this was attempting to do was to remove a lot of the bicameralism from the italian governmental structure the, the italian parliamentary structure and to enable the chamber to pass legislation in many instances where the senate would only be involved in a kind of consultative sort of role where the senate would not also have to approve various legislation the people in support of this referendum were pushing People should, be, people should be supporting this because the government's not getting anything done. There's gridlock. There's disagreement between the Senate and the chamber, which exactly is the complete reason why you have a bicameral legislature. Renzi, who's the prime minister of Italy, he came out. He was heavily in support of this. He's part of the center-left Democratic Party. Uh, so he basically hitched his wagon to this referendum, said if this referendum does not pass, I will resign. And the Italian people came out in overwhelming opposition to the referendum and voted against it. It was about a 65-35 split. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. It was over 60% in favor of no. I think it was more like 62-38 or 63-37, something like that. But it was an overwhelming portion of Italians came out against this, And the turnout was was very high as well. I believe it was about... of eligible voters turned out to vote in this referendum, which when you compare it to, say, presidential elections in the United States, where you're lucky to get 50% turnout, uh, that's, that's pretty strong. It showed that people were concerned about this and did care about how this referendum went. So this does kind of fit into, it doesn't fit perfectly into this equation, but I've talked about the parallels between Brexit and the Donald Trump election, kind of this wave of populism running across the Western world, running across Europe, running across the United States. I think this can at least be loosely tied in to that type of movement. I don't think think there's enough information yet to be able to say that Italy is going to have a strong movement to leave the European Union, or that populism is going to really run rampant in Italy. I don't think that this single vote in and of itself is enough to make that kind of declaration. But it does show that the people of Italy are not just going to listen to what their leaders tell them is most beneficial. And they aren't necessarily going to just assume that because there is some gridlock and that government isn't necessarily getting things done as quickly as those in power would like it to happen that this doesn't mean that you need to go out and change the constitution or that changing the structure of your government is the way to alleviate this gridlock and they probably saw that there are some unintended consequences here that could harm the italian people but it was a loose coalition of both far left and far right uh Parties, and I don't think this is a long-term coalition in Italy like I don't think that they could spearhead a leave the EU type of uh, type of movement quiddily was what I've heard that that it could be called kind of like Brexit uh, in the UK and I liked that quiddily uh, but I don't know if they're going to be able to have this kind of long-term coalition that you would need in order to spearhead a leave the uh, leave the European Union movement. But I do think it loosely fits into that category, and it shows that people are willing to come out and turn out. They do care enough to turn out when they see their sovereignty, or I guess in in this sense it's it's less so sovereignty, but they don't want to cede more power to the government in every instance. It's not a pure movement toward the elites want more centralization and the people are giving them this centralization that they would like. And this isn't necessarily directly related to the referendum but it's also very relevant to italy and to our own banking system as well but after this referendum banking stocks crumble and italy's banking system is in complete disarray their biggest banks are in danger of failing they have 16 percent of assets in their banking system so if you think about assets in banking loans tend to be the largest assets on the vast majority of banks books so 16% of assets on banks books are non-performing in Italy to the tune of 360 billion euros. So if we think about a bank's books and this is true of uh, of accounting in any industry, but you have assets on one side and you have liabilities and equity on the other side. So assets equal liabilities plus equity and you know by algebraic Uh, movement of that liabilities over to the other side assets minus liabilities equal equity so there's an equity shortfall in banks in italy of between about 1.2 to 2.4 percent of gdp between 20 and 40 billion euros which is a pretty substantial amount that would be analogous in the united states if we're thinking two percent of total gdp something like 350 to 400 billion dollars which if you look at the market capitalizations of large banks that's about equal to the market capitalizations of bank of america and jp morgan chase combined so this is a huge shortfall relative to their gdp obviously the numbers are far smaller because the italian economy is significantly smaller than the united states but this is a huge capital shortfall or equity shortfall. Equity and capital, I'll use interchangeably here. Um, So in the U.S., we're intimately familiar with bailouts. We saw big banks and AIG bailed out during the financial crisis of 2008-2009. We saw much of the auto industry bailed out around the same time. And what a bailout involves is taxpayer money or printed money being used to prop up or save businesses that would otherwise either fail or would be teetering on the verge of failure. A bail-in, on the other hand, that's not really a concept that we as Americans are as familiar with. It's a similar idea, it's more specific to banking. It it can be used in other businesses as well, but it's basically converting debt to equity. And as I had said before, if you think about a bank's balance sheets, assets minus liabilities equal equity. As that asset side is eroded, so as as more loans go bad, as the value of those assets go down because they're being charged off or written down, then your equity or capital position will also be declining. And as that approaches zero, the bank comes closer and closer to failure. Basically, its capital is its buffer against failing. And then to clarify just again before I go on, if we're thinking about assets at a bank, loans are a bank's largest asset. Conversely, the largest liability on bank's balance sheets are its deposits, and then its equity is made up of stock retained earnings, which is essentially net income minus dividends that have been paid out to shareholders, what's been retained in the company. Uh, So when we think of that equation, what a balance does is allow for a bank to convert its creditors and depositors are among those creditors into holders of equity into stockholders basically so think about you as a as a deposit holder so i'm i'm now looking at it from the individual's perspective not the bank's perspective and this is a very simplistic example they've also talked about depositors at least initially in this being completely exempt from any of this erosion of their of their position as creditors in the bank but say that they're converting 10% of deposits into equity or into capital, into, into stock positions in the company. What the bank would do, you know, without your consent, without you deciding to, to buy this amount in stock, they take 10% of, let's say your $10,000 in deposits in, in your account at the bank and convert it into stock. So now you only have $9,000 in your account and you have $1,000 worth of stock in this bank that was in such a poor financial position that they needed to pull this kind of stunt to recapitalize. And this should be quite scary. I mean, I would definitely call it insidious, deceitful. And what Italy would like to do uh, would be to be able to bail out the banks with taxpayer money, which obviously has its huge implications as well, which I think is even worse than a bail-in. But what Italy wanted to do was to be able to bail out its banks before having to resort to bail-ins. Due to to European law, they're not able to do that without having some sort of bail-in from creditors, from bondholders is what they've said. They haven't necessarily targeted depositors yet. But this happened in Cyprus, where depositors were eroded away to recapitalize the banks. There is precedent there, and this could easily happen elsewhere but this type of shady practice i mean obviously it erodes people's confidence in the banking sector and so you have this in contrast to the previous story that i said trying to push all these people into the banking sector and that's not a coincidence by the way people are being pushed into the banking sector because it basically gives the banks ample liquidity it allows them to keep. Deposit rates low on the liability side. Liquidity for banks is a good thing. And that's always what they cry in a financial crisis. Oh, well, liquidity wasn't available. We didn't have liquidity, 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 liquidity. That's what they cry. But these two things are not unrelated. People are losing trust in the banking system. And in certain countries, far worse than others. You think about what happened in Greece, Cyprus, I already mentioned, Italy is going down that same path where their big banks are in horrendous position and have 16% of your assets as non-performing loans is incredible. And that's just not, that's not just one bank. That's across the entire economy. So there are some stronger, medium-sized banks, I'm sure. They're kind of all being dragged down by this because there's just a a poor perception of the Italian banking system. But that's the average across the entire economy. 16% of its assets are non-performing loans, meaning meaning the bank isn't receiving payments. So this should scare us, but once again, kind of the common theme of this is this hasn't happened here yet. This has not happened in the United States yet. And we can see how these things go wrong. We can see the negative implications of these types of policies, and we can use that information to fight any of these things that are attempted at home. But I think they all fit in this theme of decentralization versus centralization one group of people would like to continue to centralize power continue to consolidate power and generally the people obviously this isn't everybody there are huge movements to huge movements in favor of consolidation of power among regular people but regular people have gone to the voting booth and they have said through their votes that we don't really believe in centralization we're going to fight centralization in certain ways. And it's not a perfect trend, of course. And there are still a lot of policies being implemented that represent additional centralization rather than moving in that other direction. But I am optimistic. And I think that the more that these types of things fail, because you're going to see Italian banks fail, unless there's some sort of European Union bailout that comes in and saves the banks. But you're going to see all the mistakes that they've made, and that the central banking apparatus has made, and that these banks, by basically making riskier loans, primarily due to interest rates being suppressed worldwide, so they made riskier rates to chase yield, because it's it's so difficult to find yield in today's environment because interest rates are so low, Um, so all the risks that these banks took should be, hopefully, a cautionary tale for banks in the future. How the governments have responded to this around the world, have responded to these types of uh, of banking failures should be, hopefully, a cautionary tale for other governments around the world and for people that are authorizing their governments to act in certain ways. Uh, so we should be following all these stories closely. I'm going to try to keep updated on these. It can be difficult sometimes to follow these global stories because I'm not necessarily intimately familiar with how their political systems work, uh, but... I do think domestic news is important, obviously, but think about all the other countries in the world and everything that's happening in all these other countries and how we're so interconnected now, really what happens in other countries does intimately impact us in a certain way. You may have to think kind of two steps removed from the immediate impact of the policy, but these things do impact us and we should be following these things. And these are important battlegrounds for the future of liberty. So I think that's all I've got for today. I did want to once again say that we are out on the iTunes store, so please subscribe to us there. Uh, You can subscribe to our feed directly. Uh, You can also subscribe through virtually any other podcast aggregating app. Definitely anyone that uses the iTunes system to subscribe. I've mentioned Podcast Addict as being my favorite, and I know they use the iTunes search engine, so anything available on iTunes is available on Podcast Addict. But uh, we should be available on virtually any other one out there and if we're not please let me know you can comment on my site or you can reach me on twitter at mark geis my last name is spelled g-e-i-s-e obviously you see the name of the show it's my first and last name uh or you can email me it's mark my middle initial r geis at gmail.com so mark r geis at gmail.com but i would love to hear if you're having any trouble accessing the podcast on the particular app of choice that you use or the particular way that you have to access podcasts I will get it out there immediately because I'm still kind of learning this game as I go along so I've tried to cover all my bases but I'm sure there are some out there that I just have not been able to submit it to or that haven't been approved so I appreciate you listening thank you for being part of this and I will talk to you again soon